Hello, I'm Stephen, this is Mick, and today we're going to be talking about the topic of rebooting society. Before we begin, we just want to say that this is only a discussion, there are no right or wrong answers, these are just our thoughts and opinions which can and will change, neither of us are experts on anything, we are just two dudes talking. Okay, I do that disclaimer before each video, but in this one we really want to highlight again that this is only a discussion. So we were going over this a bit yesterday, discussing the podcast, what we would talk about, and we realized we're going, we could go down a road where we're like, we don't necessarily agree with <laughs> where we ended up and we'll go back. And so we just wanted to highlight this. This really is just a discussion and our thoughts and opinions. So you never know where it's going to go. Just keep an open mind when we say something, oh, let's try this, let's try that. They're really just suggestions and just thinking it out. And that's kind of what we want to highlight with this podcast as well is, Whatever topic we're discussing, discussing, that's really uh, unimportant. What we're trying to get at is how do we approach discussing things? How do we approach discussing various topics, various issues, and trying to figure that out together and figure it out with the audience, with you guys. So that's really, we just wanted to put that up front just to make sure that, okay, if it seems like when we're talking about this is how we would build up society, we're going in a certain path that historically has turned out poorly. (laughs) We may realize that a bit later on and then have to backpedal. That's perfectly fine. This is just a discussion. No right or wrong answers. Mick, you got anything uh, that you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I agree. Um, It's not about the solution. We're not saying that this is a solution. We're presenting a discussion and about how two people would actually, in this case, how, how we can navigate complex topics like trying to reboot society. And if we end up somewhere, then we can actually ask the questions, okay, well, that's why it ended up that way. Um, And then we can look at the systems and go, is there a way in which we can overcome that, even though in in the historical sense, it's been been a bit of a roadblock. So if we end up at the same place, that's okay. We just talk through it and see, okay, we look deeper into why that hasn't worked in the past, if it has been tried. So it's all about exploring the topics. and, uh, you know, complex issues like this, there's never a black and white answer to it. It's always grey. And it's about how you actually then navigate the grey and be comfortable to, to move forward together, I guess. So, yeah. Hmm. Very well put. All right, then. I guess we'll uh, move straight on to the topic without any further deliberation. So, again, we're talking about rebooting society. We did last week part one of this discussion where we kind of discuss the foundations of, okay, what are we, what are our principles? What are we basing society off of? What's our scenario? So we're just going to do a quick recap of that just to make sure that we're all on the same page and we're all at the same level ready for this, this discussion. So if I go back to last week, the scenario that we were operating under was that all electronic data has been wiped clean across the globe we don't know what caused it but everyone's now on the same footing like all bank records all that identity all history everything is wiped so that's where we're at we still have buildings we still have the same population same environment everything else is still intact it's just our data is gone we were kind of limiting our discussion to within australia so we're both australian we live here if we go global it's going to be a bigger discussion even in Australia, it might be a bit big, but that's a little bit more manageable and we'll uh, work around that. If we need to refine the scope, we can also do that. But for now, we're just concentrating on Australia. We came up with a mission statement for our new society. 
And that is that we want every human being to be reaching their fully realized potential and to live a fulfilling life. So that's our goal, our objective in rebooting society and what we'll be measuring against ultimately. We agreed that we have some basic human rights, such as everyone has the right to food and drink, security, shelter, health and education. So we want to try and make sure that that's all in there. Once we've got that, anything above and beyond that is going to be up to the individual and they can follow that up to them, completely their choice. It's in their hands at that point. Some things that we said are going to be off limits, uh, murder <laughs> or death penalty is like, so murder, obviously bad, but also as justice for someone who does do mur- to, who does commit murder, we will avoid the death penalty. We'll find another way around that. And then another one that we had we didn't really know exactly how to uh, communicate this, but it was something like the mass accumulation of personal resources. So we can't have one person that has 90% of the resources. It's got to be a little bit more evenly distributed. Not perfectly <laughs> evenly distributed. Some people can have more, some people can have less, but we'll see how that um, turns out as long as it's not one person that has the majority. Some principles that we wanted our new society to operate under. Uh, we wanted transparency honesty, agency, and uh, which means you have your own free choice. You can make your own decisions, which when you've got transparency and honesty is uh, you're, you're in a position where you're capable to do that, we, we believe. And then accountability also for your choices. So if you do something, you've got to pay the price. If there's a price to that, if there's something bad happens to that, bad luck, that's, you know, you made your decision, you've got to pay that price. But then also compassion. So we recognize that we are imperfect. We do make mistakes. Allow people to make mistakes. Allow them to make up for that and then move on and and show that compassion between us. And then some additional things that we, me, Mick and I had discussed prior to our last uh, podcast, but we didn't actually discuss on the podcast was we're going to operate from the assumption that we have enough resources to last us a year. So... We don't have to rush out and do everything right away. We can actually take the time to sit back, think about, okay, how are we going to approach this? How do we want to structure society? We've got enough where everyone's fine. Everything can manage for a year and we've got some time to figure things out. And okay, that pretty much covers it. Uh, Anything that I missed, Mick? I think you covered everything well. Uh, There would be one thing I would add is that... um uh, you know, the wiping of data and the uh, clearing of everyone's records and everything, we understand that it's a little bit abstract. There might be some holes in how that, that how that happened, but really it's the it's just setting a scene to, to set the discussion. Um, and uh, yeah, anyone out there that <laughs> knows how the, the end of the world would, would work is probably pick holes in, in what we've done there, but just it's important to just set the discussion up that's that's basically what it is even that year you know you've got a year worth of resources someone might come in and say well how do you manage the people in that year you know we're we're, okay that is a problem but we don't want to actually get caught up at this point in time because there's probably a lot of value in the discussion once you get past setting that scene up so just noting that there might be holes there that's all yes very good point thank you for uh bringing that up that is something that i was thinking about as well when i was thinking about this there are certain holes if you had to deal with it in that rigid structure yeah we would have to approach it a lot differently we'd have to think things out there a lot differently but yeah it's it's a little bit rough but we're gonna that's that's the basic assumption some things might change but that's all right that's not really what we're focusing on today okay so for this discussion 
we're going to talk about a bit more practically. Okay, what are some things that we try and do to, to in the physical world? Because the other ones were a bit more abstract. And in order to structure this, what we're going to we're going to go based off of, and this is an idea that I floated to you, Mick, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So anyone who knows psychology will be aware of this. It's kind of like these are in order what you need in order to get to a point of self-actualization. So when I edit this, I'll try and put in a picture here that shows them, but basically it goes from the base layer. So the first thing you need is covers your physiological needs. So this is stuff like air, food, water, rest, shelter. Then next up is safety. So this comes to your like personal security, health, uh, protection against other people. Then after that is love and well-being, love and belonging. Sorry. Uh, on top of that, esteem, self-actualization. So today we think that that's a lot to cover. So today we're just going to concentrate more on the physiological needs and possibly safety if we have the time for it. But so more those base things like air, food, water, rest, shelter. I also want to mention that this kind of uh, structure of going from physiological safety, love and belonging, esteem, there are other uh, thoughts out there, other guides on how to reach a like self-actualized or fully realized state as a human being that kind of follow the same thing. So one of them is the um, seven chakras system. So people who are aware of that will also, there'll be some overlap they'll notice possibly between the physiology, the um, hierarchy of needs and the chakras. And that's kind of like, that's why I thought, okay, there's a few different examples out there of getting to self-realization and they all follow a very similar pattern so how about we approach structuring society in that way where we put priority on those things that are first in those uh in that guide and then like as we go up less and less priority and then that way you've got a strong foundation so if any of the top of things anything up above starts to crumble that's okay because you've got something to fall back on and then you can always build your way back up from there uh does that sound all right mick yeah, that sounds good. So basically today, it's really about discussing the foundation and making, ensuring everyone can actually live, comf uh, at least live, get the get the necessities that each human needs uh, to begin with. And then I guess in subsequent discussions, we'll look at um, elevating that uh, and getting that extra level of quality of life uh, later on. So that's kind of how we're approaching it, I think, isn't it? Yep. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've been doing a lot of talking. I'll let you talk in a minute, Mick. There's just a few extra things that I want to cover off. So we're going to start with, like Mick said, get the basic stuff that we need to actually live and survive. So we're going to start with our physiological needs. And when I was thinking of this, I've, I've been hearing a lot lately on a few podcasts. I don't know why it keeps recurring, but this rule of threes for survival, where you've got three minutes you can survive without air, Three hours you can survive in a harsh environment. Three days you can survive without drinking water. And three weeks without food. So it goes air, uh, security, I guess, security slash shelter, water, food. So I think that's the uh, approach we're going to take. That's the order we're going to approach things in. And so the first one in that is air. So Mick, I've been doing a bit of uh, talking. So maybe do you want to kick us off with... Is there anything related to air that you would say we need to focus on while we're rebooting our society? It is, it is a, yeah, it's a good one. It's probably easily overlooked because it's such a basic thing that we think that we have already. 
but maybe maybe the discussion isn't necessarily access to the air, but the managing of the air's quality. So I think actually of recent, there's been a lot of talk around the quality of air within indoors and what that actually means to humans and how that can impact their health. So um, I'm far from any expert <laughs> of, of what air quality means. And I, I probably wouldn't even know where to begin about what factors actually a detriment, but maybe it's some discussion around managing uh, the quality of air and, and how we how we all come to try and um, to come to some level of agreement to have um, to, to to look after the air in which we breathe, whether that's within a building or, or outside with pollution as well. So um, I guess where where do we start? I guess where we start is you know we need to we probably need to find the measure of air quality, whatever that would be, and then uh, uh, monitor that. And maybe that's, uh, I mean, my lack of education now and my education about understanding what Coca-Cola is, I can see where the priorities have not <laughs> quite lined up well. So I probably know a lot more about Coca-Cola or, or soft drinks than I even know about air, but maybe it's to start with that education. How do we monitor the air um, what level of air quality do we want and, um, you know, how do we achieve that not only outside but inside buildings? Um, maybe I'm, I'm giving you more questions than, the <laughs> than, than ideas. That's all right. I mean, that's the whole learning process is by the end of it. You, there was a really good quote and I can't remember how it goes, but the basic idea is that you come out knowing more than you did but you have more questions than yeah. <laughs> previously as well. So... That's perfectly fine if you have more uh, questions afterwards. I think you're right. I mean, there's two areas that I was going to focus on with air. And one of them is kind of like a bit more uh, dictatory, like <laughs> telling people this is what you got to do. But I'll get to that in a minute. First, I'll just say that you're kind of focusing on, okay, let's keep our air clean. Let's focus on how we clean up, maybe measure it first, see how bad it is, if it is bad or not, and then focus on cleaning it up and maintaining it at a level that is... Uh, better or more healthy for us uh, as humans so i think there's probably there are technologies out there like you i'm not an expert on them uh, but obviously the most basic technology that we've had for thousands of years <laughs> is trees and plants yes and so is that when you talk about this kind of stuff is this something that we do on a local level like we get each person to do contribute to this or is this something as a city or a um, state, country that we do on that level? What, what, how do you see that? Uh, yeah, good question. I think you made a good point too, is that yes, there's a lot of vegetation in the world that, that provide that, that vegetation cleans the air. And uh, our lack of education again in that area as a whole, I think as a community is probably lower than where it should be. Um, so, so I agree with that. The second part to that is, um, yes, I do think that it's valuable that everyone contributes to the, to the, uh, maintaining of the quality of air, um, whether that be like you said, the the um, we have some level of responsibility about actually having plants around us. So if you take new development areas, for instance, um, new development areas, you know, it's all the the main objective there is is money and for people to have a home. But unfortunately, throughout that process, because it's so rushed, they just basically scrape the land completely remove any vegetation and then start again by building. Um, and then they've got to wait maybe 10 or 15 years for the, 
the new area to to boom up with the vegetation of of um uh, of some established plants and and trees and all the rest of it. So I think a process like that should be almost uh and not accepted. Yeah, I don't want to say again. It's like you don't want to go down the path of dictatorship, but I think if we educate, if we have a focus and education on what air quality is and how to achieve it, and then uh, we give some kind of um, ability for people to be proactive about how they can contribute, I think that sets up a much better environment than what we currently are. So, um, like I said, I'm completely void of really any knowledge of 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 air quality and how to achieve that i do know like you said that it gets filtered just like our water gets filtered through through the rivers um our air gets filtered through the trees so that is a definitely an important focal point and i think everyone can can contribute to that in some form whether that's actually them um uh having their their garden in the backyard or or um or, or the ability for people to measure the air quality where they live even and contribute data points to 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 an overall look. Um, yeah, yeah. I think so. I like the low tech solution. Obviously, we're talking more about plants and trees. There are higher tech solutions that I've seen where they have like scrubbers in cities that take in the CO two. And um, I don't know. I guess they just clean the air. Again, I'm not an expert, but I have seen them around. So yeah, I, I'm a big fan of uh, low tech solutions where possible. The thing I wanted to mention while you were talking about that, a lot of what we're going to discuss here, even though it's focusing on our physiological needs, it's actually a lot of it comes back to education. And even even when looking at this and thinking about it myself, it's like we really need education about it first. So even though I don't know if education is a higher level on that pyramid or even if they consider it at all. But yeah, I want to, I want to make it clear that like... In each of these steps, I'm kind of like advocating for education on it first. I think you might be the same. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, while it might be a part of, um, like you said, in that hierarchy of needs, it might be a higher level need. I think even at the lowest level, there's got to be some form of communication or education, whichever way you, you want to describe it, whether it's people communicating between each other or, or educating. I think that it's still the same thing. Um, we need to be able to talk through these things and, and gain some fundamental knowledge if we're going to then have to bring that into our community. So, um, yeah, so, you know, I can't even think of a period in my school life or, or whatever that we've ever really talked about air in any depth. Um, and that's, I think that's a missed opportunity. And I agree with the low tech too. I think that, yeah, yeah, sure, in a city we can actually get a scrubber and technology to resolve it. But the city in itself has caused a problem. So even if you resolve a problem with technology, the underlying issue still exists, that the planet was meant to actually have more trees. It should have been uh, more evenly distributed. A concrete, a big concrete block in the middle of a planet is not of value. Uh, it doesn't take in its natural surrounding environment. Um, in actual fact, this is something that I did uh, my opened my eyes. I went to Singapore a couple of years ago now, which seems like a lifetime considering our current environment. But um, I was really not looking forward to the trip to go to Singapore. And I think it was because I had preconceived notions about it being, I've heard so much about its shopping and it's, you know, it's lovely um, uh, first world sort of uh, luxuries on offer. Um, and 
I never really uh, noticed that it was actually known for being such a green city as well. And um, what I think when I went there, what they did well is every building has greenery somewhere on it, on the rooftop, growing off the side of the building. And maybe it's not quite, it still needs to be shifted more to the natural environment a bit, but I, I really like the where they're trying to achieve a balance between, you know, the architectural living that we're so used to, but not removing the natural environment with that. Because if you go into Melbourne CBD now, uh, it's um, most areas that are built up, it's, you know, it's lacking any real um, natural environment. It's, it's often very superficial. Mm -hmm. There's something you mentioned there that brought up in my mind. There's a book that I'm reading currently. I think it's called A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. And in it, they talk about um, this uh, this story. I can't remember. It's called Chesterton's Fence. And the idea is that there's two people walking along a road and they realize that there's a fence in the road. And one of the guys is like, and neither of them know what the fence is for. And one of them's like, oh, let's just remove this fence. And the other guy's like, hang on a second. We don't know why this fence is here. Why do we want to remove it before we even know what it's there? Like we don't know what it's doing, what's its purpose. So it's kind of like with the trees in the cities. It's like we remove the trees without realizing that uh, actually they're cleaning our air, they're doing things. So in our approach to rebuilding another society, maybe we should do the same thing. We should consider, okay, why is this here? Why is it like this? Otherwise, yeah, we might do more harm than good. Yeah, I would agree. And I also think that what we're trying to do is have the least amount of uh, human impact on the surrounding natural environment. So I think at the moment we don't really take that in consideration because we're all about get it in, get it in now um, and at whatever cost, um, whether that just tears the... Comp uh, I mean, obviously they do, you know, they try to do environmental reports, but I would say in a lot of circumstances, it's almost a, a corrupt reporting system. <laughs> its goal is to actually make sure that construction does go through with its protections that it hasn't done anything to the natural environment around it, rather than the other way around, that it's meant to actually make, maintain the natural environment at all costs and then accept building in certain locations. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would definitely think that... Um, we want to maintain as much of the natural environment as, as we can around us and, and to, that we're trying to f adapt ourselves and fit ourselves within it rather than just remove it because it's a it's an annoyance. <laughs> yeah. like, you, you're like your example said, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing of this book is that we evolved over thousands of years longer and there's reasons that these things happen, that, that some stuff stick, stuck around, some stuff disappeared. So to just like think that we know better than evolution is just uh, hubris. And so we should pay attention to that first. And yeah, like you said, don't don't go <laughs> looking for a, an excuse or a way to justify what you want to do. Go in curious and see, okay, is this something that we want to do first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. And what, what impact, sorry, there was one last thing. I think also what impact what impact do you have? So like we have a decision, how, how can we get what we want as quickly as possible? I think it should be approached as this is what we want. How do we do it with the least amount of impact? You know, that's, that's a, a different way. And that, that usually takes a lot longer. And so we just have to be a bit more patient, accepting of that, um, that, that, that can occur, you know? I want to continue with air for just a little bit longer. Like I said, Clean, cleaning the air and uh, monitoring it is one big thing. But then on the personal <laughs> level and 
again, this comes back to education and, and it's a bit more uh, dictatory on my part, is to say that everyone should learn how to breathe and how to breathe properly and what the effects of like certain ways of breathing has on your body. And because in a lot of uh, cultures, especially look, you look at Eastern cultures and that, they realize that air is life, is energy, and that being able to control that is very important to being able to get to a fully realized uh, being in order to maintain control of ourselves. Like a lot of the time we just take it for granted. It's an autom autonomic function. I think that's the right word. But the the other thing is like even from a neuroscience perspective is that is the only autonomic function that you have uh, manual or physical control over. I think I think that's right. And this would come this would come down to uh, education a lot more so than uh, mandating anything. Although I would like to mandate that everyone does like a yoga or a tai chi or something that um, involves concentration on breathing, meditation, that kind of thing. But just education around okay this is the correct way to breathe this breathing in this way helps to amp you up breathing in this way helps to calm you down breathing in this way helps you to get to sleep or whatever it is like there's various practices and they like i'm still new to it so i haven't i'm still uh i will admit that i'm still learning a lot but i've been doing it for a little while now and just yeah ever since educating myself about it and putting it into practice my life has been far better so that's something that i would try and concentrate on with people is to just educate them about breathing the importance of it how to do it and then yeah just encourage everyone to daily incorporate that into their lives so does that sound <laughs> fair to you Mick? yeah it does i never even thought of um air being that part of it but yeah i do think that uh you know, early on in, in the childhood, I think that uh, learning uh, how to breathe is of massive value. Because if you think about it, it's probably really our internal clock. Like that's our internal clock to make our body work, you know, to pu pump the blood through the system and control certain uh, reactions in the body and everything like that. So being able to slow down that clock or speed up the clock and, and get your body into a particular state is probably going to be of real value. And... Um, yeah, I think that – and what I do like about that, if you learn that from an early age, not only will maybe you get some patience and some calm about yourself, but you'll also learn the value of one of those natural elements that we need, which is air. So it makes more sense that if you if you, if you teach someone about how to breathe and, and what the breathing does to your body, then it seems natural that when we come to the topic of air quality that people are going to have an invest, vested interest – if you remove that knowledge, then it's sort of like, oh, okay, we need good quality air, but why? How does that really impact us? So I think it's we've got the why and the what now, which is you need both in order for people to change their behavior, I guess. Very good. Um, I think we can uh, move on from air now. <laughs> Spend a good deal on it. It is, but it is something to prioritize. Like I was saying, like the survival rule of threes, you can go three minutes without air, so that's it's going to kill you first. So why do we put so little, um, yeah. uh, a little of attention on it? You know, maybe mm. that's something we should pay more a bit more attention to. All right, our next one. If we look um, in terms of what's going to kill us first, uh, harsh environments is the next one. So I, I'm guessing we can kind of frame this around uh, shelter. Uh, yeah, shelter, clothing, that kind of things. Just keeping ourselves away from like extreme heats, extreme colds. So do you have any thoughts on this? 
I do. Where do I start? So, um, <laughs> uh, so obviously, uh, that that takes into account shelter. But there's something before I, I want to talk about is that uh, temperature control and regulation. I think if we think about those trees again, so trees are very important to uh, obviously clean the air and regulate the air quality. Uh, but trees are very good at actually uh, maintaining temperature in, in harsher environments. So, you know, one thing I always noticed, again, I'm going back to the, de the development area as opposed to an established area. One thing I have noticed is when I ever I, I have lived in a house that's a more established area, the temperature of that house varies. The range of the temperature varies quite considerably. So like in a really hot day, if it's a 40 degree day, the house is like, at, if I don't have any air conditioning on, it's like at 30 degrees, you know, and, 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 and the opposite's true as well. So like when it's really cold temperatures, um, the, the, the house changes the really low temperature quite easily as well. And I think that when I've ever been in an established area, that temperature range doesn't fluctuate as much. So the, ha the house, those trees sort of protect that house and regulate its temperature somewhat. I don't know if that's true on the cool side. I'm not 100% sure, but that's my anecdotal feeling about it is that whenever I've lived in an established house, the temperature outside hasn't impacted me as much as when it's not surrounded by that natural environment, the trees and everything. Um, they do definitely offer cooling advantages. I wonder if, I mean, that's a really interesting perspective and I wasn't even thinking of it from that angle. So I'm glad you brought that up. I wonder if what you're saying is, and again, not an expert, the materials that we say to use to build up a city or a suburb and that, I wonder if they are more, I'm guessing it's conductive is what I'm looking for, than natural like the ground, uh, trees, water even. I know water takes a long time to change its temperature. So like it's more resilient to fluctuations in heat and cold. So yeah, I'm wondering if being around those natural elements, they actually just take a lot longer to change their temperature. And I can't remember what the terminology was for it. But yeah, I wonder if that's what's going on. Does that sound familiar to you at all? It makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. So like the induction, wood's a, a really poor inductor. That's why you can walk on, on hot coals because uh, it doesn't transfer the heat quick enough. So, it, but it absorbs the heat. So whereas if you've got, you know, I'm, I'm going to the opposite extreme, but a lot of roofs that are colorbond roofs, they basically, they're the best thing to actually attract the temperature. So, and glass is another one of those, like if you have big glass windows, obviously there might be special coatings that reduce all of this, but you take the property of glass in itself, it's very, it's a very good inductor of temperature. Uh, when it's hot, it absorbs all that heat and you can actually feel it. And when it's cold, it, it does the opposite. Um, so yeah, it's the building materials definitely have an impact. Um, and to reduce their impact, I think that you surround yourself by other materials and trees are probably one of those ones where... It's combined. It's a combination of both wood and water, and both of those have slow um, induction rates. Like the temperature in those change over a long period of time, um, so that's probably why they absorb a lot of the temperature around your home. Mm. I think the term I was looking for is specific temperature. I'm not too sure about that. I would bring it up, but I don't want to like kill the flow. But yeah, it, it, it's just how resilient is a material or a chemical to um, change? Like how much energy do you have to put into it to change the temperature? So let's, going over what you just said, is it safe to say so? And I know they do this in cities now. They look at, okay, how much, what's, what do they think the temperature is going to be? And so they 
build around it or they design around that. I know we were doing some, we had some projects where we were looking into that a little bit even. So yeah, are you saying then that similar to with air, we look at, okay, adding nature, trees, plants around cities in order to maintain that temperature? Yeah, I think so. So like uh, if we think about how we deal with that today, we deal with it, oh, let's get ducted heating installed. Let's get air conditioning installed in our house. Oh, everything's good now. I can control my temperature. Um, I can I can feel comfortable within my home. But that comes at a big cost of energy uh, and the way in which we actually uh, uh, get that energy today is, is not, uh, is obviously has an impact on the own environment. So it's like... We, you know, one thing it is, yes, we need to regulate temperature in order for people to not only, I guess, to not die, but to have some level of comfort. <laughs> um, and I think if we want to do that, then we should focus on what are the natural elements we can use in order to regulate temperature first before we then go adding in everyone has an air conditioner and everyone has a heater or something. Um, because once we get that, then the the you know, you still might need to have heating and cooling in the house, but I think that the amount of heat energy required to do that would be a lot less, and that's beneficial for everyone. Um, so, yeah, it, it kind of makes sense to do it that way. It sounds like we're going to be spending a lot of this first year just uh, <laughs> destroying half of what's been built up before and uh, getting back to nature a bit, which, I mean, <laughs> from my perspective, is perfectly <laughs> reasonable and fine, but, yeah, some people may object to it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I would say we we want at the end of it less dense areas. So maybe CBDs aren't uh, and suburbs aren't aren't the way they are because at the moment it's like no one's out here, everyone's in here, <laughs> and it's uh it's not a very balanced approach. Yeah, we've talked about it from a um, I don't know what you say. We haven't really discussed it from okay. How would we distribute housing or how would everyone have housing have you got any thoughts about that remembering that we are continuing on from what we have currently like it's again it's just the data that's been wiped so how do we actually if we are remodeling things and and making population less dense how do we distribute the housing amongst us yeah that's that's probably one of the trickiest (laughs) questions i think we're gonna we're gonna face out of nearly everything we're gonna talk about the only way uh, I can think of a starting point, at least, is that let's say we've had that end of the planet and, and basically, um, you know, the data has all been wiped and we've got that year to go forward. I think the status quo in the initial instance is those that are currently been within their houses sort of stay within their houses at the, uh, for the short period of time. And those without houses, we find houses for them to have to begin with. Um, so that would be those houses that are not occupied. How do we actually practically do that and ownership? That's a big question. Um, I'm not sure that we want to navigate that through this discussion. That's almost a discussion, a full hour topic in itself. But what I would say is that I do agree that everyone should have access to a house. Um, is it ownership? Is it renting? I don't know. Um, but we should come to some agreement that, and I, I, obviously a family of bigger size needs a bigger home. A family of a smaller size needs a smaller home. How you manage the sizes is another trick as well. Cause obviously 
if we're going off the fact that everything still remains the same, there's going to be people in mansions and then there's going to be people in units. Um, and I think in the initial instance, we have to kind of, the only way I can think of trying to deal with that in the short term where people uh, <laughs> don't cause a riot is that you, okay, you maintain your current situation for the immediate future. And at some point in time, like you said, I think we're going to basically reinvent the way in which we live and that might be a task going forward so something i guess that we haven't really uh, maybe we haven't brought up but i think that all these human needs that we've got at this fundamental level in some way each person on the planet should contribute to those human needs um so with housing when we you know when we come out of this year or even during the end of that year that we're sort of educating and creating this structure maybe it is that we start to build houses a bit further out and we migrate people to those houses and that. How you manage that logistic is still, I think, something you'd need to discuss. Um, and it's tricky. Yes, it's a <laughs> much larger discussion, I think, and one that uh, would have a, a lot of uh, anger on both sides between your approach or... Yeah, I don't know. I can't. I can't find the words, but yeah, there's a lot of uh, opinions that would be conflicting in that one. I was thinking while you're saying that, I'm like, it almost would have been easier if we just said that. Okay, everything's been wiped. We're back to <laughs> yeah, rocks and birds and nature. Just like no houses, no technology, nothing. We're starting from that point, but we're starting from where we are, so we have to um, deal with that. I think, yeah, it's the problem to me with. Um, with giving people houses and because I think it's a, it's a good idea. And again, this is something we want everyone to have. And if everyone has those basic physiological needs taken care of, you know, they're less likely to interrupt with other people or interfere with other people's lives and, and cause them harm and damage and stuff. The thing that you can't remove from any discussion like this is like human behavior and personalities and ego as a big one. Like even though, we would give them a house. Maybe it's in an area that they don't like, or maybe, you know, oh, it's too small, like comparing it to someone else. And then it's like, oh, well, we, all right, we'll make it all the same. And then you get down like a very dark path if anyone knows where that's going. But yeah, I don't, I, again, that's a much larger discussion that we'd have to have. But that's where I think it comes back to like education and being able to, being content with like nothing really, being content with, okay, all I have is not the clothes on my back and I'm out in nature, even less than that maybe, like being able to say that this is more than enough. I'm, I'm being grateful for what you have and that's like, yeah, I don't know. If you can get to that point, I don't know. That's another discussion entirely. How do you get people to be to that point because there's a lot to overcome there. But yeah, it seems to me that the limiting factor there is personalities and egos and wanting to be or thinking that they're lesser than someone else just because of what they have. Yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, there's still going to be individuality. So wherever you live, uh, each individual is going to have different perspective about uh, what they want as their place of residence and how that's set up. Um, what I would say is, uh, yeah, I agree. There's human behavior in there and it's going to fluctuate and obviously it's not going to be, it, it's there's no ideal solution here so it's going to be a bit rough but i think that if you the problem i think that we have now is we have set up an environment that creates extreme behaviors 
Whereas if we if we're educating about okay, you know, uh, making sure that nature's taken care of, which actually has a positive impact on us, then I think even though you're still going to get those individual differences, they might not be as extreme. So people might be less likely to want to have a massive mansion with pools and cars and all the rest of it once they start to realize the benefits of having a bush around them and living a little bit more minimalistic and uh, enjoying the day-to-day activities that they undertake um, they might not be then there might be less they might be in a more stable mindset that doesn't drive ego that doesn't drive competition that doesn't drive uh, um, extreme uh acquisition of 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 objects and and materials and everything like that so it's kind of having a bit of hope and faith that once you create this uh this kind of different perspective with the population that they're that those more extreme behaviors get reduced they they might not disappear altogether but they'll be reduced and it should be easier to manage um through that point in life but i think everyone uh, should the basic human right is and i think we've got enough resources to do it is that everyone should have some form of shelter um yeah if if they want it because there's some people that don't enjoy that as well so you know there's nomads that, that just enjoy jumping from place to place and, and being outside as well so yeah that's the thing it's we're just trying to make sure that everyone's got these basic things it doesn't mean that you have to live at that level or you have to you have to do that it's like it's just it's always there available for you. And then how you choose to live beyond that is up to you. Because obviously, like we were saying, like we're trying to get people to realize their full potential. That's completely different for between every individual. So that's going to mean different things to different people. Some people that will be staying in one place, some people that will be traveling the world and seeing a whole bunch of different things. So yeah, it's just that, okay, we've got this baseline that everyone is is given, everyone has taken care of. So if anything fails when you're trying to do something beyond that, it's okay. You've got something that you'll fall back on and you'll be safe. You'll be fine. You don't have to worry about that. Mm. Yeah, one, you know, that's what we want, isn't it? That baseline to fail. So because at the moment, if you, if you fail, this is the way I see it. At the moment as, as a society, collectively, we've got enough resource to take care of everyone, it, it, it seems. Unfortunately, that's not currently happening because it's there's an un, a very huge unequal distribution of resource um but if we can get back to a point where anyone can fall over and they still get those basic needs you're not going to get the extreme emotional reactions of depression and anxiety to the same extremes that they are and that's what you want to try and alleviate that's that that uh you know if someone falls over they don't fall over so much that they become homeless or they become uh where they can't get themselves back up again um yeah. I almost wonder if you were trying to actually restructure society, if you would do it in stages. So you'd like, you'd concentrate on air first and do all those things, say that we were saying, and then see what the state of people is at that point. It's like, what do people want? Uh, is there, yeah, does this jealousy go away? Does this want for um, extremes go away? Does it slow down? And then when you go to the next one, it's like, okay, now we can deal with it at that level. And then maybe as you progress through those things, you actually realize that it's it's already eliminated most of the concerns that we have today. Like we're we're operating at a different footing as we implement each of those different uh, areas. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's right. Like some of the yeah. So as we're talking about it, some of the things that happen, you know, when you when you go through a problem, there's like a, a direction or a goal, 
Um, but then how you actually achieve that, it's not really known until you get to that point sometimes. So I think you're right. Like you basically deal with the things that you need as, as they unfold and then you reassess um, how people's behaviors change based on that. And then you might fine tune those tasks going forward. So like I think w what we can agree is that people should have um, at least some equal access to shelter what that shelter is and all the rest of it would be decided more closely to when you actually get to that point. But it's very hard to be able to describe all the logistics because you'd have to go through the process a bit to figure out which is the best way to do it. But we do know that, okay, the end goal is that we want to get to a point where there's some kind of level of equal access to shelter um, because that's a human, a human, you know, a basic need, I guess, so that, for security for people. Yeah, I'm thinking at this point, it'd be good to say that like we're discussing it from the perspective of, okay, given where we are at currently, how would we solve everything? But that isn't how things evolve, how technologies evolve. We, we, it's really a feedback system. So yeah, we make a change, we assess how that, what, what happened and then we correct. So we've got some, some desired point that we're trying to get to. We make a change, okay, it got us closer, it got us further away, and then we adjust based on that. So we really do have to consider it as this is something that we'll iterate on over time. It's not just set and forget, it's <laughs> set, watch, you know, change, adapt, all those things. And that is like the process of evolution and growth. So I don't know, I think that I just wanted to, because I have been thinking about it from the perspective of okay if you were just to do a one-off how would you do it but it's like no that nothing works like that mm. it's all you got to do it and then assess it and then change it and adapt yeah. it. yeah i think the other important thing too is again it's one of those education things if if shelter is really important are we all educated about roughly how shelter i mean we might not all have to be able to build it but do we know how shelters built you know and and what are the decisions that get made through building that so part of it is also about the education and getting people understanding. And I think when you do that, you uh, you create the environment in which people can better navigate that area. Um, so, you know, maybe it is as you're growing up, you learn how, you know, build, what building shelter is, just the basic foundation of building shelter, like, you know, uh, make sure your your roof is pitched so the water runs off. You know, the, just the very basic things, I guess. Um, and then it gives... Because the other thing as well is that at the moment, um, building, you have to go through so many regulations, which I understand why. You want certain safety criteria of the building to, to, to be there. But it also creates a lot of barriers and blockages, um, which has an impact on accessibility of those those buildings. So, like, for instance, now, you know, you get one big block of land and everyone can build on that and it can be in the middle of nowhere. Um, it makes complete no sense to do it that way. Um, um, but it's the most efficient way and then just a set number of people come in and just follow the same process to do it. And the people that end up living in that home really don't understand how that home got built and what, what why decisions were made and what benefits they get and values they necessarily get out of that. So maybe educating what shelter is and how best to build that shelter, you know, ma maintaining temperature like insulation, you know, going through the basics as a, as a younger person, that would really set you up in the future. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, it's really having more awareness about what you're doing and focusing on that rather than just doing it or relying on like, it's like the difference between what is it, a chef and a cook where a chef understands what's going on with the ingredients and why you're doing a certain thing, whereas a cook is just following a recipe. They don't necessarily understand what's going on and the interactions between it where maybe we want to have, especially for these things that we place really low priority on, even though like you look at the the different guides to how to live a fulfilling life they all like the bottom rung this is foundational this is what you should know and we put like the least amount like how much do we concentrate on air how much do we actually concentrate on shelter and homes it's all other stuff it's all like status and jobs and yeah other other things i mean so yeah so i mean i was gonna say no i think that led into something that i was thinking about which is that you know like you know how we sort of said at the beginning that i don't know how we do logistically the homes and Maybe the best way to start off is that people just reside currently in their ones until we until we solve that out. But if the if each individual starts to learn how to build a home, then they can take the risks and the rewards by actually maybe it is that okay you get this piece of land here, uh, and again there's probably you know different pieces of land that are better than others, so there's still challenges there. But maybe it is this is your plot, and you get to build the house how you see fit. If it collapses on you, well, you know, you'll learn from that kind of thing. Uh, you'll deal with the consequence of that. And sooner enough, each family is going to learn how to build a home pretty quickly. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think, um, yeah, having having that approach might be a value because then each person's got some autonomy. And obviously, there's a, there's a capital to build shelter. There's this big startup cost. But once it's built, it's the work's pretty much done. There's a bit of maintaining, but, you know... Um, it's pretty much done so maybe that's another avenue that we can think about how to how to roll that out you know yeah definitely i mean it comes back to our principles there it's like transparency we're telling you okay this is how we recommend you build a home like we've taught yeah. them being honest and upfront about that and then giving them agency okay now it's up to you you know you can go and mess around with it if you want to you can take the risks and then they're accountable for it like we're yeah. not holding your hand it's up to you yeah maybe yeah. that is yeah maybe it is more of a approach where it's just we educate them and then let it play out yeah all right we're uh, getting a bit long so i'm thinking maybe we i mean if we get into anything else i think it'll take a bit too long to discuss i mean just from the discussion we've had so far it seems more like we can't actually recommend anything or come up with anything before like you need to really just try it out and, and educate people and, and tell them okay this is the this is the best result this is the way that we know best to go about it you know give that a shot improve on it and then share that knowledge amongst each other um i don't know do you want to like I, I think we leave this one here but maybe we come back to it in the future and continue going on them but i think it sounds like either way it's always going to come back to that like education about it first so as long as you're focusing on those areas and it's more about reprioritizing ourselves where it's like focus on those basic needs first and make sure they are a strong foundation before building up to anything more yeah do you have any thoughts about where you want to go from here yeah i think that i think it's still valuable to go through each one um and i mean obviously if we you know if we're running out of time we can take it to another episode I think what I'm feeling is that we're building a bit of a framework. So it's not necessarily a, 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 a practical answer about how you actually do it, but we're sort of building a framework and a and a space in which you would you would 
you would uh, try to achieve it. So I think even even today, like the quality of air, like I don't think I've really thought about that too much in the past and the breathing and what it actually means to us. Um, uh, the water, obviously we think about water water a lot. Um, uh, the food and uh, the shelter, um, those kind of things. I think that building up a framework of about what we actually want to achieve and then just discussing how people might shift from that would set... And then you set up the practical aspects from there. So I don't think you're right. It's a bit difficult to actually start going through the practical aspects, but I think it's still valuable to show this is the framework going forward. Because what 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 is the framework now? Like, um, what do we all focus on together? I, I don't know. The only time we do it's collectively with a government body, and I'm not sure that we get the best outcomes of that. Like, do we all focus on education and health and shelter at the moment and food and that? I don't know. So maybe this framework is to get people into a state where they're, they're going to be better off um, uh, moving forward uh, rather than actually giving them practical answers about how to go about it. Yeah. Do you want to... I mean, I mean, that sounded really dismissive when I just said yeah, but I, I do agree no, with no, completely what yeah. you just said. And I think it is worth having the discussion around these things, even if it isn't a practical, okay, let's implement it in this way. It's kind of a... Um, gives us a bit of direction like okay if we were to do things we would focus on learning about it and we'd focus on maybe these aspects that we already know that we're lacking a bit of knowledge in do you want to we've got water and food left for physiological do you want to maybe keep going i mean i'm feeling all right and it's all right if we we go a bit longer do you want to maybe keep going and just knock those two off today and then we can come back and do the next level another time i think so it makes sense to round it out with them too um we can probably pull them pretty close together because they're both, um, you know, consumed by individuals. Um, you know, they do have to be sort of harvested in some way. I mean, water is harvested from dams, um, you know, and, and, and food's harvested from crops or, or um, uh, you know, groups of animals or whatever. So I think it's important to, yeah, close the loop with them ones. Yeah, okay. Let's, all right, let's, let's continue then on to... And let's go back to you can survive three days without water. And if we're grouping it together, you can do three weeks without food. So water is going to be our next important thing. What are some areas relating to water that you think maybe we should try and focus on and improve on in a new society? Okay. So I think at the moment we've got, I think we've got access to water is fairly equal. Well, at least in Australia. I mean, I can't, there's a lot of countries where that's not necessarily the case, but in Australia, we do, but one of the things that we do poorly is understand water management, um, particularly uh, freshwater land, you know, management. And uh, while we're actually in a really good point in time, and we each of us fairly have fairly equal access to uh, quality water, uh, the future of our water, I think, is in question, and it's coming back to, I guess. Uh, we're going back to that education piece, I guess. And that again, I think, you know, we've got, what have we got now? We've got shelter, we've got food, water, uh, we've got quality air, you know, quality of the air. I think everyone needs to participate somewhere in these um, in order for us to to achieve the outcome we want. So uh, having more people involved in um, managing water is going to be of importance, I think. Um, yeah. 
managing in what respect? How how managing how? Um, so okay, so if you think about the uh, Murray Darling River, that has been poorly mismanaged. Do you and want to explain just for those who <laughs> possibly okay. aren't Australian or, yeah. the, or Victorian? Okay. Yeah. The Murray-Darling so River. the Mur- Mullard- Murray-Darling River is a river that goes all the way from uh, in New South Wales. It uh, crosses in through uh, Victoria and ends up at the uh, into the beach, actually, down in um, in South Australia. So I don't know how long that would be. Maybe a thousand kilometres or something. So it's one of our. I think it is actually our biggest river system in Australia, um, and it's been completely decimated due to two things. The first one is that there's been a lot of agricultural land that feeds off of that river system. And unfortunately, um, all the pesticides and herbicides that people have used over the years has washed into the Murray-Darling Basin. And it's caused a lot of algae plume and a lot of issues with with the river system itself, killed a lot of wildlife in there and everything. And the other part is that the government's kind of I believe has privatized aspects of that and given unequal access to to the fresh water and has used it as more of a commodity to sell off than a commodity to actually manage. Um, so it's being used and and what that's ended up in is that the river is in a really poor state in a lot of areas it's dried up, in a lot of areas it has no natural life in it that it used to be there. So it's been poorly mismanaged. And it's been because the perspective of what water is, is it's something for us to take. Um, and we just take it at will. Um, if the water's there, we can take it. But the understanding of the cycle of water and, you know, how it, you know, a lot of the times it ends up in the ocean, it gets evaporated, it ends up back on land through clouds and, you know, it gets filtered. There's a whole filtering process and the 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 light the ecosystem in the water keeps it clean and filtered the the surrounding environment actually make make sure that the water is still running there um, all those aspects are complete you know in a lot of circumstances are put at a low priority uh, and we're only got very short sighted about our water and it could be it could be a really uh, tricky part because we do have water restrictions sometimes in in areas in in Australia we've come to points where you know, you have level four or five water restrictions, which means that you have to even, you, you basically get fined by using too much water um, in those areas. And it's just been because it's poorly managed. Um, you know, you can't, so for instance, some of those restrictions is you can't water your garden. Uh, you can't, which is a bit detrimental because now you can't manage the natural environment around you um, because of other impacts that we've we've had on the, on the planet as well. So I think... We've got the access, the equal access to water there, but uh, the management and the education around how to maintain good quality water um, year in, year out is not there. It sounds to me like what you're talking about there is the learning about the life cycle of water. And this is something that I would extend to everything that we do is that we don't really focus on the entire life cycle. So specifically there, water, food is another big one where we don't really pay attention to, okay, where does it begin? Where does it end? But this is something that businesses like they, I don't know how to what extent they do do it, but I know in university they teach us, you know, always pay attention to the life cycle from like transporting it to 
getting the raw resources to like the whole thing you need to pay attention to it but a lot of the time we as individuals we just see it as how we can use it and then how we dispose of it and that's pretty much the limit of our understanding of the life cycle of it so that's something that i would pay attention on for everything really like air shelter water food everything we've talked about so far is yeah where does this come from where what are we doing to it how are we using it where's it going afterwards and then what's happening beyond that because like you said like pollution is a big thing and it's more than just like dumping chemicals from a factory process it's also from the agriculture from the pesticides and what impact that's having on the rivers and the lakes and all the waterways that we have i like the like you're more concentrated there on uh, public water on not public like natural water resources what about like collecting it as individuals like everyone having a tank say in their house what about that kind of stuff do you have uh, any opinions on that yeah i think the ability to have your own yeah it's actually a good point i think the ability to have your own some form of water management locally for yourselves is always an advantage because you know even you know people that are in bushfire areas they do do this a lot because obviously it's a, it's a uh, it's a um it's a form of protection for where the environment in which they live in. Uh, if a Bosch car comes through and the pipes are all cut off, then the ability to still the the you know uh, to protect their home during bushfires there. So managing your own water is definitely good. And I think one of the other things that I probably glossed over as well is understanding the minerals. You know, so like uh, water that's captured from one particular area isn't necessarily equal to water that's caught in another area. And that really does base on where you're geographically located as well. So understanding what minerals are, you know, what your surrounding environment is in, where the water naturally goes and what minerals are valuable because of that natural cycle. And then how can you look for opportunities where you live to, to take advantage of that? Um, so maybe, you know, and the reason I said that is it might not necessarily be a rain, rain tank. Maybe a rain tank is a good thing for collecting water, but it might be, um, you know, some kind of form of, of, of dam or, or rock dam or whatever um, within your backyard that might be a more valuable approach too. So, you know, I think looking at those options and figuring out how you can best uh, manage that in your area is going to be of value. Yeah, and I think that's of... Uh very important point that you made down there that it depends on where you are obviously if you're close to a water source then it's going to be a bit easier than others who are far away and maybe that's even something we consider with uh, shelter maybe we are living too far away from these resources that we need to survive so maybe that's something to consider with that i think yeah that's you made a good point about there's <laughs> not all water is created equally I don't, I don't i can't remember exactly i think it's total dissolved solution or something is the measure that they use or total dissolved nutrients of the measure of how much nutrients are in the water. And yeah, some of them are far more beneficial for us to say drink versus, you know, use outside on garden and that. So that's something that would be interesting to look into and educate people about. I was actually thinking about this the other day. Um, we're not going to cover it here, but like energy is obviously a thing that we will probably want to consider. I mean, electricity is pretty good we or everything that we're doing now like this whole podcast is all powered by electricity so it's something that we need to consider but even and this is something i'd have to look into again not an expert using water to store energy like oh because i was thinking because we got solar power solar panels recently but we don't have a battery for it so it's just going back into the system so i'm like what if you had each person could buy something that 
it, it's like a motor that pumps up the water to a certain height and then whenever you are lacking energy it releases the water and it turns a turbine or something so you use that as your battery source instead of you know just how, what we'd think of a battery a lead acid battery or something now obviously i don't know <laughs> the efficiencies of doing that but just thinking of other creative ways to use water i mean historically it's been used if you were living on a river you, you put a um what do they call it? like a water mill in that's infinite energy there like you don't have to pay for anything there so there's there's various ways and we've used water for many things like moving objects is a big one that we don't uh we don't place too high importance on like yes we use boats and stuff to travel around the world but i mean think of the this is something again i heard on a podcast recently one explanation of how they got um the pyramids how they built the pyramids how they moved the stones from one area to another was that they built tunnels of water and they used that to offset the weight of the the stones because if you get something in water and it floats all you do is push it you don't have to put a lot of energy in it and it's going to move so using water in a novel way is there anything else you want to add on for water otherwise you can jump straight into food i think uh, not really. I think that moving of things is very interesting. It, it's uh, it's true. I've I've watched a few um, docos where they do the same thing in in uh, when they're um, getting wood from forests as well. So they'll cut down all the all the trees to get their forest, and they'll use the river to actually transport the logs down the stream, and then they'll collect them. So you're right. I think what I would say here is as we go through all of these, I think what we're learning is that basically, oh, this is how I'm perceiving it anyway, is that. Currently, the way in which we approach it, we don't consider the natural environment around us first. We consider it last. And I think almost what's happening now is we're flipping that so that the natural environment's considered first before we actually do anything else, which is a much more uh, probably um, harsher way to approach living. Um, you're not working against it. You're not fighting it. So like at the moment, like I said, at the new development zone, the whole natural environment's stripped to bear back to bare bones again um, so it's not considered um, um, and what we're doing is now considering it and educating people of what it means too to them um, yeah I love that I love considering the natural environment first instead of like mm. last instead of working against it, work with nature instead of against it that's correct yeah yeah that's going to sum up everything that's how I'm going <laughs> to end yeah. it but <laughs> before we get to that point food what are your thoughts on uh, what we do for food well, I think in a lot of ways it's similar to to, um, to water, but there's probably two points that I'd like to expand on food is that I think we're not well educated about how food grows and how it gets the nutrition, nutri, nutrients and, <laughs> and how those nutrients are important to us. So I think nutrient sort of how food's grown and, and, and what nutrients it has is one thing. And then I think the other thing is that we need to relax ourselves from perfect crops. So one of the biggest challenges I think we face on the planet today is the way in which we build crops or, or manufacture food. And the way we do it is we say this square of land has to get the most production food out of it for it to be valuable. So therefore... Pesticides and herbicides are acceptable, uh, acceptable in order to get the best value of that land without considering that, okay, you know what? I'm going to do this land, but there's enough there that if 20% of my crop gets eaten or taken away, we still have what we need 
and we don't need to protect it with such extreme chemicals or in such extreme ways. I think we be, need to be more, more, um, more accepting that, that food is, is uh, not grown perfectively kind of thing, if that makes some sense. Yeah, that's... I mean, I'm taking some notes here because I don't want to forget things. That you brought up pesticides, yes, that's a big thing. And I like the way that you describe their use is so that you can get you can get you you want to use this land and do a certain thing with it so you're again working against nature instead of with it by adding these pesticides and then i don't know if you were going towards this but like monocrop farming where it's like you're growing a single thing let's let's consider what effect that's having on because i know a lot of people say that there's certain number of yields left in the soil because of how we are doing the monocrop farming so yeah let's have a look at what effect that has on um on the foods that we're producing um yeah we also work yeah so we also work against ourselves with food so like you know the monocrops is a really good example so think about where monocrops are grown right and the surrounding land around it is often completely stripped of a lot of the natural environment. So there's no wonder that you get mouse plagues in this monocrop that's sitting in the middle of nothing. Because the mouse go, okay, there's nothing in my natural environment. I'm going to this monocrop that's just a rich source of food. Now, if we're more equally distributed about how we build our environments, they might not necessarily even have to go there. So... I think there's a there's a problem where we've stripped a lot of natural environment. So then animals come to the zones in which where we are doing controlled growing and then sort of raid that. And then we kill them off because they're raiding that area. But the reality is they've been forced to go to that area because their natural habitat's been killed and their a lot of their food resources been stripped as well. So it's sort of this fine balance that yes, we're growing growing food for humans. But we have to accept that na- that the wild animals around that area need food as well, and that we can't just consider that you just eradicate that. That's our current solution: is oh, okay, animals are here, shoot them, kill them, uh, or herbicide and pesticide, some way kill them. You know, that's working against nature again. That's not practical. <laughs> it's not practical to just kill everything because you want a perfect crop. Um, you have to accept. You have to accept the the imperfection of nature and and run with that. Yeah. Again, working with nature, not mm. against it. Mm. You're focusing... I mean, I like that you're focusing on the actual production of food, but that also says something about the diet. So, mm. one thing is... And this is really... I got a friend here. I can't remember. He's a teacher. And he asked his students, like, have you ever walked into a supermarket and they haven't had whatever product on the shelf. I'm like, no, what are you talking about? Like, we don't understand that, you know, there are times in your life where certain products won't be available. Maybe there's like no bananas or no apricots or something because of the season. And this is something that is cool that we can do this, but we have certain fruits and vegetables. And I want to get into like um, produced food in a minute and the diet because we're just mainly concentrating on uh, fruit and veg, but we we have access to these things all year round when that just doesn't happen <laughs> happen in nature. It's like where are these things coming from? And maybe they are because they're being transported from other countries. And 
even there, they still have to like, they're growing these things all around all year round. So they're doing things that to maintain them, like you said, like destroying the uh, wildlife around there or adding pesticides. So I think one thing that would be good if we could get to more of a um, seasonal diet where we're concentrating more on, okay, it's winter time. These, these fruit and veg grow in winter. Let's concentrate our diet more on uh, using those instead of trying to force something that only grows in the summertime, like say a watermelon or something. That's brilliant. I'm I'm really glad you actually brought that up. I didn't think about it, but that is there's two things that I can think of that are really valuable in that. The first one is if we get people to go with the natural cycles that uh, are seasonal. That is actually a beneficial to the human psyche. Um, one of the things that we get comfortable with is that we get what we want when we want it and how we want it. And that works for a while, but then when something goes wrong, people are less prepared to deal with the shift. Having to do this year in, year out, having to go through seasonal cycles will force people to adapt. And that is a valuable, that is definitely a valuable uh, attribute for a person to have. Um, and the other part is, yes, so you're right. At the moment, we can get any food when we want it and how we want it almost. I don't think anyone really understands the cost of that. So while we can do it, there's a significant cost to pay that's not obvious, I think. Um, so some of the things are like we've talked about, the monocropping, the shipping, um, all the rest of it. So may, you know, if you were to... Let's say we, we're focusing on the education component. Maybe the education component is obviously about the diet and the nutrients, but also about your, lo your local environment. What, what grows there? You know, what, what naturally grows in your, uh, in your environment? And how, again, working with nature, how do you best cultivate um, without causing too much damage? And it makes sense. You, you're not fighting it then, are you? You know, like, so what if you don't get strawberries in this environment, but you get uh, apricots or something? Just that, just accept that um, and and uh, adapt yourself towards it. Yeah. You said, I mean, even there, you gave an example straight up of a something that most people wouldn't consider. I hadn't considered it. So it's really cool that you thought of it. Um, the, the effect of, yeah, immediate gratification, the fact that we can do this, people... Uh, less likely to be uh, 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 less patient because of it or that might be contributing to it. That's just something that you wouldn't normally attribute to being having access to a certain food year-round, but that might actually contribute to the psyche of each individual. So, yeah, that's I like that. It's really cool that you brought that up. Um, going back to like life cycle as we're talking about with water, uh, understanding like what we can do with the food once it's done, like composting it, even growing foods, like some things you get and they have seeds in it. So it's obvious, okay, this is, you're going to use these seeds to grow more. But some other things I look at and I'm like, there's no seed in this. How did, how did they grow? And then like you do, this is something that I want to get into personally, a bit more understanding where the food comes from and how we grow things. But a lot of them actually go to seed. So if you leave them in the dirt long enough, they'll actually grow the seeds on their, on their fruit or vegetable I think it's mainly the vegetables. I'm not, again, not an expert. But yeah, understanding, again, coming back to the education of where food comes from and how it comes. Like you can't just take every everything from the ground. Some of that you have to let it grow so that you have seeds for next time. And that's, again, goes to the life cycle and maintaining it and working with nature. 
Mm. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Like lettuce. I, I don't know how lettuce reproduces itself, for instance. it's a, I think it's a – I don't know if it's a bulb plant or whatever, but um, yeah. I think vegetables – isn't it vegetables the ones that basically don't have seeds and, and, and fruits the ones that have seeds generally? Um, Possibly. So, I'd have to look yeah. up it. I think, I I think lettuce remember. goes to seed. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I've seen them. Ah, oh, does it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you just leave yeah. it out there long enough and it grows a shoot yeah. out of it with seeds in it. But yeah, right. again, I might be okay. wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll come come back to me in a year's time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I'm an expert on that. You're a horticulturalist. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, definitely educating people where their food comes from, how how it's grown and, and um I think having a local scope on that's very important too. So like there's some things that we obviously like even buildings probably there's some local scope to that as well, but some things are going to be more general to the biggest uh, section of the population, like air quality, I guess. And other things are going to be more local, like food I think is very local. And if you can adapt yourself to go with a cycle of your local food production, I think the planet and us would be a lot better off than us trying to fight it and go, you know, I want avocados even though they're grown in, where is it? I don't know, Brazil or South America or whatever, um, and they get shipped over. It's kind of like, okay, yeah, that comes at a big cost, you know. Um, do I actually need to have avocados or, like you said, am I just self-gratifying? I think you were saying there with local, like we can do more community garden type stuff. Like even imagine in a city complex or so, like a building well, what do you call them? Like an apartment complex. Imagine if you had one level where it's just a garden and everyone that lives in that complex can come and contribute to that garden and pick from it and whatever. I mean, that's, again, it comes back to behavior, but maybe by the time you get up to water and food, you've taken care of so much that people are more generous, more willing to share with others. So it'd be something that you could try out and it might actually work. Another thing is like a lot of people I don't think have actually eaten fresh fruit or veg like from their own garden i think that's a pretty novel experience for me it's i've been around people who grow their own have their own veggie patch and, and fruit and so i've had it ever since i was young but i think there are a lot of people out there who haven't actually had it and don't realize that there's a big difference between it and the main thing may it may come back to again those pesticides and and the way that we farm it that and even like having to send it across the world because it's not local you need to store it or pack it in some way that which diminishes its nutrients and its flavor and maybe that like even just giving people an experience of fresh fruit and veg will be enough to also convince them to start growing it themselves and, and look more into that and it, it'll you could even extend this to higher levels on this um, hierarchy of needs which we've kind of uh, gotten a bit away from but like it's it's a good social thing as well trading it leads to trading and sharing between people like not one person doesn't have to grow every single different type of fruit or vegetable that is possible in their location it's it's a good way to share that's like something that we do a lot sharing between families it's a good community thing it brings people together and then even cooking and eating like there's such benefits to getting together over a meal as well psychologically and socially so there's a lot of things in food that i think we take for granted that we could look into is there anything else regarding to food that um you think we should mention um I, I don't necessarily think so i think you know like you said about the um having a community garden i think yes in again 
you're going to have some problems about who gets what. But got to remember that if we were if we're working towards a less in individualistic environment people are going to be less anxious about getting what they need so you know people 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 accumulate when there's there's anxiety or fear that they can't get it in the future if they feel confident that it's going to be there they're not going to go taking a whole lot of it to begin with so you know i think as we shifted away from having this individual mindset and that we all agree that we contribute somewhat to these basic fundamentals that anxiety and fear that you can't get it is going to be uh, reduced. It might not be completely gone, but it's going to be reduced. And therefore, those events of someone just taking more than they need from a community garden is going to be uh, reduced. It's going to be mitigated. Um, but yeah, just working with the with, with the natural environment and learning, like you said, even, even just the cooking, like um, there's so much uh, social benefit to preparing meals and then sharing it with others um and you're right like some people have maybe never really tasted fresh fruit they've tasted the supermarket or whatever um even to an extent like you know a lot of people use microwaves there's some people that just live with a microwave and don't have a stove and stuff like that Uh, that's another thing that i would say is that processed foods yes i think there's still maybe some value to processed foods but we want to be they shouldn't be front and center that the, the main choice um that should be yeah yeah sorry to cut you off there i just want to say that's something that it's good i wanted to come back to that before we um tied it up or, or finish it off yes processed food so let's think about um like you said it, it's probably good to have in a supermarket kind of invert it like currently it's like what do you what would you say maybe 60 percent processed 40 percent uh Whole foods, does that sound, or maybe even more of a disparity? I would say, yeah, I'd say more. I guess the gray line is do you consider, uh, um, you know, some of the canned vegetables or fruits being uh, processed or not? Um, But yeah, I would say if you you don't consider those tin fruits, it's almost just the the veg, the meats and the the fruit um, and maybe some peanuts and stuff like that. Um, so I'd almost say, you know, if you look at it, that's almost like 70%, 70, 80% of the food's processed. Um, yeah, so, if we could invert that, yeah. I think that would be a good start. Do you see, I mean, for me, I'd get rid of them all because I just, I don't really eat processed foods anyway. So, but I understand that there might be some value in that. Do you, what do you see as the value of still keeping around some processed foods and which ones would you keep around? Uh, oil is one of those ones, I guess. So oil has so many valuable benefits to when you cook. So for instance, um, uh, you know, if you want to have something that's a bit char grilled or, or something like that, you, you need oil, I guess. <laughs> um, so I don't know what extent processed foods might be. So, uh, you know, some oats, wheats, things like that, I guess they've got to be processed at some form to be consumed. Um, uh, maybe flour is one of the benefits. You know, obviously there's an argument with glu- uh, you know, gluten within there, but you know they've, they've been around for 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 centuries and they've provided a lot of value benefit for humans. So I don't necessarily, I don't want to go to the extreme extent to say you get rid of all processed foods, um, but I do think it needs to be reduced considerably, and I think it's because not only for our own health. 
And it also comes at a high cost of energy. Um, so it doesn't make sense that you use a high cost of energy to then, in a lot of circumstances, impact your health in a negative way. Just it doesn't make sense. Um, um, so you probably want to reduce that. Obviously, I think that there is some benefit, like, you know, having a nice... There's something about humans where, like, say, for instance, that char-grilled char thing, there's a sense of pleasure that you get from having something like that. Um, but you should be able to pretty much live without processed foods and have that as kind of a bit of a luxury, I guess. Um, yeah, so maybe it's not a basic need, but we still need to consider it in the future. I wonder if you could look at the process and say that's how you distinguish like anything that you can just chuck in a microwave and heat up is probably not great. No, I think, no. I mean, from most of what you were describing, I wouldn't even really call most of that stuff processed, although I guess it is. Mm. But like it's, it's anything that's not recognizable, I guess from <laughs> like a something that you can pull out of the ground or off of a tree, I would say that's probably going a bit too far. Like, mm. yeah, you could with flowers it's, it's pretty easy to connect between the grain that they came from or mm. with oil it's pretty easy to connect that that came from say mm. olives or where, whatever the different flowers that you can get different types that you can get but i don't know something more and i don't eat processed foods but I'm, I'm guessing there's stuff that you know that's put together in a factory that i guess like biscuits and stuff and chocolates it's got like 30 ingredients nice. yeah. yeah maybe the fun it's got 30 ingredients it's processed i don't know <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there'd be a limit to the number of ingredients. You can have like five or six. <laughs> yeah, anything yeah. beyond that is too much. Yeah, if you can't start, if you can't start to pronounce what's on the back of the packet, there's cause cause for a question. Yeah, I think I mean diet's another big one in itself. But so I think we've uh, covered enough in terms of uh, mm. from from this perspective of creating a new society or rebooting society. Is there anything else you want to mention before we wrap up? Uh, not really. I think uh, while the t the talk didn't really go in the direction that I thought it was going to go, I kind of feel like we've actually got a better outcome. I feel like what we've learned from this is that we actually work against nature in a lot of ways um, and that's only going to cause a rift and that uh, maybe if we change that perspective where we're working with nature a lot more seamlessly, um, we wouldn't have such, such rift and such angst that we do today. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it and... I think the fact that I'm actually glad that it didn't go <laughs> the way that we had planned because that means, I don't know, it was more fun doing it this way than trying to pigeonhole it into the direction that we wanted it to. And that's the whole idea, again, of this this format and, and this direction and space. It's just like, okay, we want to end here. We don't care how we get there. We're just going to let it unfold. We're going to act, but we're not going to judge the outcomes we're not going to feel bad if it didn't go exactly the way that we thought it would because we have confidence and faith that it's going to end up where we want it to go and again getting back to what we really want out of this is just to uh discussion just open thoughtful discussion and and how do we go about that best and the topic again even though it's fun to speculate on these things we're not giving any advice or recommendations we're just discussing the topic and, and seeing and thinking about how we approach things and how we discuss and how we communicate amongst one another. Yeah, definitely. It gives you that example, you know, how we were, we were caught up on which one was it, the shelter one? And you sort of, you had to work, we got to a certain point where you go, okay, now we had to, you'd have to actually do it to figure out some of the solution. 
it's kind of what's happened today. So you sort of see that we started off with some some rough goals or objectives about what we were trying to talk about. Um, but because we just let it unfold naturally, it shifted its direction. And at the end, you get something, uh, because you went through the process, you get something that you didn't really envision at the start. And I think that that's what's cool about being able to just discuss it and not always be hell-bent on a particular solution or a particular path. It just allows it naturally unfold and those, and then those opportunities start to arise and you're like, oh, yeah, okay. That's, uh, you know, like we've, we've said, okay, we really are working against nature at the moment um, and we wouldn't have saw that before having the discussion. So, yeah, that's probably what I've taken out of this. I've learned out of this today. Very well put. I'll just mention once again, like, like you said, consider the natural environment first. And like, if we apply that to life, I think we'll be a bit better off. All right. So my supplemental song suggestion for today is, uh, this was actually a bit difficult to find one that really fit the topic. And it may be a little bit off topic, but that's fine. It's still a great song. So I recommend going and listening to it. The song is called Cardboard Castles and it's by Watsky, W-A-T-S-K-Y. He's a great artist. It's a great song. Go and check it out. And then my quote for today, again, it was a bit difficult to find one that really fit in with the topic, but I think it's it actually is a pretty apt after our changing discussion today. And it's, the only constant in life is change. And it's by Heraclitus. I think that's how you pronounce it. Okay. We just want to, once again, thank you all for joining us and mention this is just the beginning of a discussion and we really like uh, people's input. So thanks for joining us and until next time, be well.